You're listening to the Docks and More podcast with Lovejeet Daliwal. James Jones is an award-winning British director who makes documentary films for international television and theatrical release. His documentaries tell extraordinary human stories from some of the world's most difficult and dangerous places. The films combine journalistic rigour with a distinctive cinematic sensibility. He has made films about police shootings in America, the drugs war in the Philippines, suicide in the military, wars in Ukraine, Iraq and Gaza, and undercover investigations in Saudi Arabia and North Korea. His films have won Emmys, a Grierson and a Rory Peck Award, as well as an RTS and many others. Welcome to the Dr. Moore podcast, James. Very nice to speak to you. Was documentaries always something you wanted to do? So I think I, I always knew I wanted to do something journalistic and I left university wanting to kind of get a start in journalism and kind of found that it was very hard to get paid work because I was one of, you know, many, many graduates with the same kind of ambitions. So I did a few kind of internships at magazines and, and things like that. And then I'd studied Russian at university and basically got a job as a translator on a BBC series about Russian oligarchs. And it was it was a dream. I got paid £100 a day to, you know, watch rushes, sit in the edit, you know, sometimes go out filming, and I just completely fell in love with the process of, of making documentaries and was working with brilliant people. And, you know, probably unlike if you, if you start out as a runner or researcher, you know, you, you're involved in your little bit of it, but because I was the one who could actually speak the language, I was there with them right through to the end of the film. That's fantastic. Um, so it was, it was very much like a, a sideways way in, but you kind of already jumped ahead of quite a few hoops. Yeah, I mean, I then fell backwards and had to start from the bottom again. But at least it had kind of given me an insight into how it all worked. And then, you know, I, I kind of had a credit. So at least I had something to show for it. And then um, I kind of, you know, was struggling for ages, to be honest, for like the first year or year and a half. And was thinking, like, do I give it up and go to law school and try and be a human rights lawyer or whatever? And then I think I'd even like applied for a place at... Uh, at City Law School and then got a call from the BBC like my CV was on their file and then got a job as a researcher in the kind of current affairs foreign affairs department and then was there for like a year and a half and just learned loads. Now one of the films that you're best known for is Unarmed Black Male. Tell us about that film. It was a subject that I've been following for a while you know there was a kind of Black Lives Matter movement um, you know, back in kind of 2014, 2015. And then, yeah, so I had two, two friends at The Guardian who were running this project called The Counted, which basically um, gathered information on every single person killed by police in America. And, you know, it's extraordinary to think, but no one had been doing that before. The government hadn't done it. Journalists hadn't managed to do it. It was this huge undertaking. And it was shocking. And it was around the time when there were a lot of high-profile shootings that were caught on camera. Um, and I think the thing that interested me, or, or one of them, was that you know I'd done films in places like North Korea and where citizen journalists had kind of filmed stuff to show the world what was happening. And with the police shootings, there, there was a kind of similarity in that in the past the police's word had been taken as kind of gospel truth. You know that was evidence in itself. If the police made a statement, that was taken as fact. And what was happening is when people had cameras on their phones 
people were filming these incidents happening and they weren't at all what the police were describing in many, on many occasions and you know police were kind of panicking when someone was reaching into their pocket and you know it just so happened that around this time there were these cases there was Eric Garner there was Philando Castile and and you know they were shocking and you kind of it made you think that this had been going on for years and years but because there hadn't been cameras the police's word had been taken as as fact so that kind of interested me and I really wanted to find one case to kind of look at that issue through and um it was actually a case in in Portsmouth Virginia that hadn't got much coverage partly because it wasn't filmed on a mobile phone as it happened there was some footage from the taser which automatically starts recording but crucially there was like a 15 second clip missing and so at the beginning of that 15 second gap they're kind of having an argument the police officer and the the young 18 year old guy and by the end of the 15 seconds when the camera comes back to life he's lying on the ground dead and so the idea really was to follow the murder trial of this police officer you know one of the extraordinary things was that because of the political change after black lives matter police officers were being charged for these shootings for, for really the first time and so we went to virginia we we started filming with the family of the victim who initially was pretty wary of us and then we filmed all through the trial we filmed actually with the family of his previous victim who'd been shot 11 times four years earlier who happened to be from kazakhstan so totally randomly my russian suddenly became helpful again because i could speak to her speak to the victim's mum and so we filmed throughout the whole trial and it was you know fascinating on every level and and depressing really because whatever your opinion on the phenomenon of you know young black men being disproportionately shot this showed a system that was so divided by the kind of toxic legacy of race in america so even looking at the courtroom you know the prosecution lawyers were black the defense lawyers were white the police who were supporting the police officer were all white the other side of the courtroom was black the jury was eight black people and four white who initially were completely divided along those lines so that eight black jurors wanted to convict the white police officer and the four white jurors wanted to acquit and in, anyway eventually they came to a kind of compromise but it just showed that the toxicity of race was so skewing this issue that no matter what you thought about this police officer's guilt it wasn't really a kind of functioning justice system how were you actually received by the family and by the police so initially you know we met the family they'd had contact with my friend at the guardian who'd written a piece about them quite soon after it happened but they you know as so often when you make these documentaries you show up and they sit, they kind of roll their eyes and they're like look we've had reporters out on our doorstep after this happened you know we don't want to talk to the press we don't want to talk to the media you know candy william chapman the young guy who was killed mother is like is an amazingly charismatic and brilliant woman but you know has like quite a chaotic lifestyle and didn't really want outsiders kind of sticking their nose in and i remember the first time we had lunch with her she barely spoke you know and she was grieving and going through a lot and worried about the trial and everything and i said to her i was like you know in, when the trial is happening, we're probably more likely to be like inside the house with you. And it was, it was gradual, but like I'd say over the f course of the first couple of weeks, we just, you know, became close with her. Her barrier came down, and you know, it was kind of amazing to see actually. Because often with these films, when you're dealing with people who are grieving, 
like this sounds kind of self-serving to say it but it does become part of their process of getting through it it becomes a kind of focus and for her I think the attention and the fact that she felt that there was this cause behind her and the kind of support grew in the community you know when she we did she did one rally in the parking lot of Walmart where where William was shot and she was she gave this speech that was just so charismatic and kind of uplifting and you could barely believe it was the same person that we'd met you know a month earlier in that really awkward lunch and then so yeah and I think in a way I had an American producer I think in a way being you know you've always got to be conscious of your how you're perceived as the filmmaker and I think in a way being a kind of white British guy how did that play out well I mean we were going to, you know the, the Portsmouth the town is like 50% white and 50% black and you know it feels almost segregated still you know the communities community where where candy lived is like almost entirely black so we would stand out quite a lot but you know as soon as as candy welcomed us in the community welcomed us in you know we never felt any hostility at all really and you know that was very gratifying and you know but it was i, I don't know it's interesting like whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage and sometimes being totally other can be an advantage because they kind of see see you as like an alien from outer space and don't assume you have a particular agenda or not and so it with candy it just relied entirely on our kind of personal bond with her and what about the police how how do they see you do they kind of think oh well you know here's this white british guy who'll totally be on our side and we'll yeah. be able to tell him whatever we want was that the perception yeah it's interesting I think they could see in the courtroom. So in court, we were obviously kind of talking to Candy and also talking to Elena, who was the mother of Kirill, who'd been killed four years earlier. So it was quite clear that we'd been filming with the victims, you know, so they could assume probably that we were getting one side of the story. And, you know, in our heads, Steve, Stephen Rankin, the, the officer who, who shot these two people, was this kind of monster like we'd read stuff he'd posted online and all of this so we kind of assumed the film for better or worse would be told from one perspective and then at the end of the trial we kind of approached his wife just to say you know you've probably seen us we're making this film would you be interested in meeting and then she did meet and you know I think when you're making these films you just got to be honest with people like people can smell a rat if you're trying to play them and we were like look we have filmed for all this time with the victims' families, we've also filmed with other people who've worked with Steve who say, you know, unflattering things about him. But this film will be better and fairer if you put across your perspective and what you've been through. That will make it, you know, a stronger film. And she, I think, felt like she hadn't been listened to and so she wanted to speak. And so we did an interview with her. And then after we filmed the interview with her, we said, oh, you know, we'd love to meet Steve. You know, obviously he wouldn't want to do an interview, but we'd love to meet him. And five minutes later, she said, oh, he's on his way. We're like, oh my God. So, you know, we met Steve Rankin, who was who had just been convicted of manslaughter. But again, we were just straight with him and said, this film will be better if you explain to us your perspective and what, you know, what how you saw the incident, how you saw everything around the trial. So then he did an interview, which we'd never, ever expected. And at that point, the BBC turned it from a 60-minute film to a 90-minute. I mean, to my surprise, I'm not sure Steve has ever seen it because he went to, to prison. 
his wife, Dawn, watched the film and I talked her through it and I said, look, we interviewed his ex-wife who says this, we interviewed his ex-boss who said this. And actually she watched the film and thought it was fair. You know, there was a, you know, I think most people would watch it and think that the police and Steve don't come across that well, but I think we gave them a kind of fair hearing and you know there was no commentary there was no it didn't feel particularly like we were taking a, a position but yeah I, I guess i guess with both the victims families and with the police we were just pretty we had we had the luxury of time so we were going to be there for months and months and months we didn't have to pressure them into filming straight away you know we could kind of talk about previous work we'd done and just really build like a personal relationship which but is yeah, what it's... filmmaking is all about really isn't it just building yeah. that relationship with them now one of the other documentaries that you made which i found really moving and is probably a part of the world you don't hear very much about is it's the north korea film you didn't do the filming for this so how did the film come together this was unusual in that you know as a filmmaker you never really want to be asking people to go to places and do things that you wouldn't do yourself. So this guy, Jiro Ishimaru, who is Japanese, had been building a network of of North Korean citizens inside the country for about 10 years and had got footage out fairly regularly um, and had actually worked with Hard Cash, the company that we made the film through before. And, you know, it was around the time Kim Jong-un had come in people were curious about the situation and I think a lot of people had done kind of tourist trips to North Korea where you'd go in as a foreigner you'd be shown you know sparkling hospitals happy people would come up almost kind of like actors and you'd get a kind of very surreal but not particularly revealing image of of North Korea and so we you know we thought really the only way to to see what life is like for actual real people is for them to film it themselves which which is great in principle but incredibly difficult when you think about the kind of you know security protocol which we have to do and channel 4 are incredibly hot on that so we were writing you know 60 page documents about protocols and but ultimately i think it came down to thinking that everyone involved understood the risks that we would never, you know, there are a lot of cowboys in that world. So we spoke to a few different organizations and some would say, oh yeah, we can get you footage of prison camps for $30,000 and all this kind of stuff. And immediately you just think like, no way. You see actual, you know, children, orphans who like, who live on the streets begging for food. I mean, the people who brought yeah. out the footage, it's just incredible. I mean, you, I'm not surprised you had a huge sense of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, and they, you know, I guess speaking to Giro and in, indirectly to them, it was that sense, you know, are they really doing it for the right reasons? Um, and I think, you know, having seen the pictures, you can understand why if, if that was something you would see in your everyday life. And yet the image of the world saw of North Korea was this kind of cartoonish idea of leaders with silly haircuts and nuclear rockets and all this kind of stuff. You know, I think you could understand why those people would want to kind of change the narrative and, and reveal to the world that people were living in like desperate poverty um, and kind of, I think they really, you know, we filmed another guy who was kind of doing the opposite. He was a former political prisoner who was smuggling DVDs and USBs of 
like American movies and South Korean soap operas. So he he was taking this huge risk to basically spread a kind of counter narrative that North Korea is the best best country in the world to North Korean citizens. And I think he thought that this would lead to a kind of you know long term uh, people turning against the the regime. Film that you made, it was five years ago now. Where, where do you see it heading? Do you think there will ever be change? Because it still seems to be pretty much clamped down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean it's, it's difficult when you when you work with those defectors and you work with those brave people inside the country and you talk to experts. It's easy to kind of get a feeling that something is bubbling away, but then, as you say, it's five years later. You know, there've been kind of in interfamily struggles and he's you know executed his uncle which which gives a sign that everything is not quite right but you know i think there is it's hard when so much of the population is so downtrodden and so poor the focus is on day-to-day survival rather than kind of revolution you know it seems like kim jong-un has had this health scare recently and it's probably more likely that he'll die in in office and then someone will take over who's maybe more of a reformer. I think that's probably more likely than some kind of big revolution in democratic upheaval or anything like that. Now you've also made a film very recently called On the President's Orders about the Philippines President Duterte. What drew you to this country and in particular this this president? You know obviously I'd done the police shooting film in America so kind of my ears had been you know, tuned in to, to the war on drugs, so-called war on drugs in the Philippines as it started to happen. You know, it was around the same time we voted for Brexit, they voted for Duterte, and he came in on a platform saying he was going to basically wipe out drug pushers. And he literally means wipe out, I mean, he means killing people in the street. Um, and I remember there was this amazing photo essay in the New York Times of just bodies night after night on the streets of Manila with people, you know, their heads bound with duct tape and you know pusher written on a card left on top of their body and it was all about kind of fear and sending out a message and some amazing local photojournalists who my co-director Olivier Sabel had met at a French festival were doing this amazing work and it just just the scale of the killing was so shocking and then I, I think we kind of thought we'd just finished a film called Mosul where Olivier had been embedded with the Iraqi special forces. And I think we thought what people hadn't really seen up until that point, people were seeing bodies. And I think there's a danger that it became a bit formulaic and it started to just wash over people. And there was never that much kind of unpicking of who the dead person was, who killed them. You know, was it actually the police or was it, you know, people talk about vigilantes and all this kind of stuff. So we wanted to kind of try and get access to the people implicated in the killing and kind of get inside their heads to see how they could justify basically kind of mass executions. And so we basically got some development money together and flew out to Manila to, to see what access we could get. What was it like actually filming out there? Because I, I've just got to ask you, you, you seem to love going to all these quite dodgy places, uh, to be quite frank. What, what sort of measures do you take when you go out filming? How do you make sure that you're safe, your crew is safe, and also your equipment doesn't get nicked? The, the Philippines was interesting because we were, we were with the police, who were probably the most dangerous people. You know, I've, I've filmed in some war zones. Olivier is incredibly experienced, you know, in, in Mosul where he filmed it was 
you know the most intense kind of urban combat since the Second World War. So and you know he's got a military background as well. So it was it was interesting because it definitely the slums were very poor and there was crime and there there was there were drugs, but you know for the first half of filming when we were mainly with the police, it was more about kind of winning their trust and hope getting them to open up rather than fear of of being you know we went on a couple of night raids and that kind of thing so I guess you've always got to be careful I think the the time when we were most worried is when we started to film in the community with kind of families of victims because you know we didn't want to lead the police to these guys we didn't want them to feel worried we didn't want you know the police to suddenly turn on us I think what you know one of our fears was that the police would you know conveniently find some drugs in our bag and suddenly we'd end up in the prison ourselves you know they kind of play by their own rules so I think we were just kind of constantly wary constantly assessing the relationships we had with the police and you know I guess we filmed at night in the slums a bit but usually we were out on the street for a short time either we were with the police or we were with local people and we you know it was only me Olivier and the local fixer producer so we were never too conspicuous you know we had one small camera one tripod i had like a little sound kit you you explained the situation there but have you actually been caught in any really unpleasant situations probably the most intense situations i filmed were, were gaza and uh ukraine Ga- gaza was you know it was the middle of a war and you know you'd be in a hotel and you'd hear bombs going off you know a few neighborhoods you know a few streets away or whatever uh but our film was about children in gaza so we were never we never had to be kind of on the front line of the fighting but that was at that time that was a kind of new experience for me crane was hugely frightening yeah it was frightening although the thing is because you know the israelis are quite sophisticated and they go quite far to not wound not injure uh western journalists so I was there with the BBC and so you know information would get through the BBC about areas they were targeting and stuff like that I never felt in too much danger myself it was more just kind of every time you heard an explosion in the distance you would think that means more death that means more you know tragedy basically in in Ukraine it was different because I was kind of on my own for the first bit of it as it was turning from kind of revolution to um, civil war so there were times when I would be out filming at night and there was one like hostage situation and I remember the, the kind of pro-Russian like thugs basically what they were them kind of turning to me and be like you're not scared <laughs> just the idea that I'd be there on my own and they could easily turn on me and smash up my camera and, and so I think you know in a way that that felt more scary to me because in Gaza I felt like the BBC was so kind of sophisticated in the way that they managed the risk um, I think it's scary when you feel a bit kind of out on a limb and um, you're not quite sure how the situation is going to pan out. But you so, always manage to fill out that risk assessment form correctly and, yeah, yeah. and get it out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you, there's there's a knack for filming. And, you know, and, and I used to be a bit cynical about risk assessments, but actually, you know, it, it's a pain in the ass. But thinking through all those scenarios is definitely worth it. And just, you know, you've got to take this stuff seriously and have the right kit if someone does get hurt and all those things, you know. is I think when you're young, you kind of, you think you're invincible but now you know I think 
all of us recognize you know olivier was very badly wounded a few years ago in libya but i think all of us recognize stuff can go wrong so you've got to do everything you can to try and avoid that you've done lots of work in difficult countries but i believe your next film is based in the uk tell me very briefly about that so yeah so it's the it's a film about the 2011 riots in england and uh it's it was commissioned by the bbc it's a 90 minute feature length film which will go out next year for the 10th anniversary and I guess the idea was that it was this huge kind of historic societal moment that we kind of forgot about quite quickly you know we had the Olympics the following summer we thought we were this kind of happy united progressive country and actually you know the past few years have shown that we're kind of more divided than ever ripping each other apart so it was to kind of try and use the, the space the time and perspective to try and understand why it happened. You know, these things don't happen in a vacuum. And I guess to speak to the people who are actually at the heart of it, both rioters and police and political people who, because of the time that's passed, can probably speak more openly now. You know, a lot of the rioters have been to prison and come out. Police officers aren't in, in the Met anymore. And so we wanted to kind of, through a kind of small cast of characters, really go quite deep into the backstory and understand, like, what caused it to happen you know i think it's much it's more difficult at the time when you're just seeing people nicking trainers and jd sports to think maybe this is symptomatic of some deeper problem and certainly the political class and the media dismissed it as just pure criminality but i think it was about something else and i think hopefully this film tries to answer that question well thank you so much for joining us on the docs and more podcast really nice talking to you You've been listening to the Docs and More podcast with Lovejeet Daliwal. If you enjoy the show, review and subscribe to the series. <laughs>